So, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Autumn Croy, and my husband and I, we are not from Kentucky. We moved here from the Carolinas six years ago, and we, my husband moved here to study his, um, to get his PhD at Southern Seminary, and I'm happy to say that he graduated in December, and so we are done with that, praise the Lord, um, but um, it has been a long six years for us in being here, and we have had some different trials and difficulties and things that we have faced. Um, we've also had our two children while we've been here. Um, our son Atticus just turned four, and our daughter Elise will be three this month. And so um, we have just seen some great mountaintop things in having our children, and then we've experienced some low valleys and disappointments while we were here. So it's a little bit ironic when Betty and Katie said, Autumn, we want you to um, do the topic of trust God, find wisdom, because I thought at first, okay, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are some of my favorite verses. They have been all my life. This will be easy. And then I thought, wait a minute. I can look back over these six years and can see that there have been times when I thought, I'm not really trusting the Lord or saying, God, what are you doing in this season of my life? Um, in my husband and I will be married 10 years in March, and then having our two kids, we're in that season of life in the predictable unpredictability, and, um, and then also living here, not knowing where we were going to go next. And I have found myself saying, God, what are you doing? And I've also realized in my sanctification that I'm a bit of a control freak, and that I, if I didn't already know that, I definitely know that now, and that I always want to have a plan, and I want to follow the plan, and I want to do what the plan says, and like I said, with small kids, and then a husband who's really laid back, that doesn't always happen. And so it's, like I said, it's a little bit ironic, but I'm so thankful that they gave me this passage to teach on because it has helped me to grow tremendously, and I hope that, um, that you will be able to just glean from that as well. Um, I also want to say, too, that Fisherville Baptist Church and then Mosaic in this Bible study has been life-giving to me um, through the course of these years. We haven't been here the whole six years, but for about two and a half we've been here, and it has been such a blessing to me. And the ladies that I've gotten to know that have encouraged me along the way, it has, it has been such a bright spot in my life, and so I'm so thankful. So our main idea today um, is trusting in God's wisdom leads to godly flourishing. So we're going to look at what that means. Are you flourishing or diminishing? This is going to be our question all throughout. Google says that flourishing is developing rapidly and successfully, thriving, while diminishing is gradually making someone less impressive or valuable or to seem that way. Are you flourishing in the kingdom of God or are you diminishing? Are you becoming less valuable for godly purposes? Do you have wisdom in the word? Do you have a leg to stand on when you impart the gospel to others? I want you to think about this question, and we'll keep coming back to it um, as we go throughout today. So as we start to look at these verses, Proverbs 3, 1 through 26, there's a framework, an overall framework of three sons. So the first, my son, is in verse 1, and this is through verses 1 through 10. Verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. The second, my son, is verses 11 through 20, and that starts with, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. And the third, my son, starts with verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. 
And so we're going to base all of our verses and how we outline this, this section on this framework of the three sons and what this father is saying. So we have to look first at the importance of the son language here. Tremper Longman in his book, How to Read Proverbs, says there's a distinction between the implied reader and hearer and then the actual reader and hearer. We're the actual readers and hearers of this text. But it is implied that the father is speaking to his son. And so we may want to say, oh, well, I'm the daughter. Like, I can just put that in there. But if we do that, we start to lose the value of what it means to look at it from the son's perspective and the son's point of view. It's not addressed to us. It's addressed to the son. So realizing this helps us understand the nature of the advice that's given in the first part of the book and then the imagery that points to Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And to read this book correctly, we have to remember that it's given to a male at first. And so we are, though, all part of this audience. We are all part of the ones that are supposed to hear it and read it today. And so we are supposed to be the audience that, that gets this and so we need to make a decision do we follow wisdom or do we follow folly like Sarah was talking about in the last two weeks so while it's addressed to the sun we still can can glean from it and learn from it for our day to day so the first my son number one verses one through ten what is the posture of your heart is going to be our question what is the posture of your heart verse one says my son do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you in verse 2. So what does this mean? Don't forget. Let your heart keep. We talked about that this morning. These are things that we have to do. We have to remember. And that the son, the father is telling his son, remember the commandments. Remember the teachings. Well, what are the commandments? What are the teachings? They're the covenant law given to Moses. Okay? And if you remember, Katie in the first week said bonus points to anyone that can tell me connections to the law and take a highlighter. I don't know if you remember this, but take a highlighter and highlight all the connections to the law. So you get bonus points today with Katie. Whenever you see her, tell her we talked about the law today and how it's connected here. The commandments and the teachings are the law that were given to Moses. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 2 says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So this alludes to that length of days in verse 2, and the years of life and the peace that they will add, that all your days will be long. So there's a connection there. Then verse 2 also says that for length of days, they will add to you. Well, again, they is the commandments, the covenant. Dwayne Garrett, he's a professor at Southern. He says that long life and prosperity are held as, as rewards of obedience here. It doesn't necessarily mean riches, but it means healthy physically, physically, as in financially, and in relationship with others, that there's a wholesomeness, that it transforms the whole person. And this goes back to the posture of the father teaching his son. It's not to get something in return, but to improve the whole person, to transform them to be more like Christ. A good example of this is the Awana program. Um, some of you may not be familiar with it. I know Laura is definitely familiar with the Awana program. But I am a Sparks leader for first graders um, on Wednesday nights. And in Awana, the goal is for the children to learn the scriptures and to hide them in their hearts. 
But one of the incentives to that when they first start out is they get these things called Awana books. And it's like money to them, and at the end of a semester, they will go to the store, the little store that we have set up where they can get prizes with their money. And that's great. It's a great incentive for them to learn, but that's not the ultimate riches or gain that we want them to have. We want them to be able to treasure that word in their heart and to hide it. And long, many years from now, we don't want them to say, oh, I had this many Awana bucks. We want them to say their verses and remember them and recall them. Verse 3 um, says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. This steadfast love and faithfulness, this, this connection is used together when the Lord shows his character to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. And I don't know if you remember, but Moses asks to see the Lord, and the Lord says, I can't let you see my face and live, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And this is what the verse says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we, this, we see this connection again here. It's showing the character of God. And it's showing the father is telling his son, don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this opportunity to see the character of God here. Bind them around your neck. Dwayne Garrett again says, he says the neck is a very, the, very pers- the very life of a person that love and faithfulness are to become part of the son's heart and life. And we've looked at this before in our study a few weeks ago of when you bind something around your neck, you're holding it close to your heart and close to yourself. We're going to look at this neck imagery again. It's going to appear again over the course of these verses, and it reiterates the importance of the throat, the heart, and the, the whole person and how it's to affect us. So the heart is mentioned three times in these first five verses, and the internal character of the heart is the focus here, not external obedience or reward, even though there will be rewards. It's focusing on character over behavior. Deuteronomy 6, again, um, and Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, I'm going to read those, have some distinct connections here with what this heart language has to do with us now. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them. Again, we have that binding. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is connecting that binding. Even though it's not on the neck, it's binding them on your hand, binding them, keeping them close. And then Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And get this, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the new covenant, of how God is writing this on our hearts? And the Father is telling the Son here, look, keep this close to your heart. It is important. It is important to know these teachings and these commandments. And it's an encouragement to live faithfully to the covenant by heeding this parental instruction, this faithful parental instruction from the Father. And verse 4, the benefit here is that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Again, it's not, it's not some kind of prosperity gospel, but it's the benefits of seeking God's word, 
and applying these teachings and that they're evident in the sight of God and other people. A good application here is that we need to keep, to keep the commandments, we must know the word. To keep the commandments, you must know the word. Are you flourishing or diminishing in this area? Are you in the word daily? Are you reading your Bible? Are you studying it? Are you learning verses and chapters? Are you praying the scriptures? Are you doing these things faithfully? I know in different seasons we might not have as much time to give to those things, but we still need to be diligent to study God's word. Sometimes it can seem daunting, but I, I was looking up how long does it take to read X book, you know, in the Bible, and uh, I found some different things. Romans, you can read in an hour. Mark, you can read in an hour and 30 minutes. Revelation, an hour and 15 minutes, and there's a whole list. But Revelation, like how complicated it seems, and you can read it in an hour and 15 minutes. And then um, you can read the Bible every day for 10 minutes and read it in a year. So that makes it seem a lot less daunting, right? Do you know that each of those books that, that um, take less or just over an hour to read is less than watching a two-hour movie? And so not that watching a movie is wrong or bad, but just think about where are our priorities when we're doing something on our phone or watching TV or a movie, Netflix, whatever it may be, that we have the time if we give it to the Lord um, and he will faithfully bless us in that way and grant us his wisdom. Um, Let's move on to verses 5 through 8. This is the posture to the Lord. We've looked at the posture to the Father's teaching. Now we're looking at the posture to the Lord. And this is in two parts. The first part is internal actions. And so we have these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. But what does that mean? Like these have been, I've said this, these have been some of my favorite verses throughout life. But what do they really mean? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Bruce Waltke says that trust must be entire with your whole heart. The Lord alone gives wisdom and provides protection, and one's security depends on him. This is also the third usage that I was talking about of the heart here in this passage. And again, it parallels Deuteronomy 6 and the greatest commandment in Matthew, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not lean on your own understanding. The best definition and the, the way that I could explain this, I can't explain it myself, so I went to Bruce Waltke, who says, One is a fool to rely on his thimble of knowledge before its vast ocean, or on his own understanding, which is often governed by irrational urges that he cannot control. Let me say that again. One is a fool to rely on his thimble of knowledge before its vast ocean, or on his own understanding, which is often governed by irrational urges that he cannot control. That's what it's like to, to depend on our own understanding, our own urges, our own desires, and not his. In all our ways, acknowledge him, and he will make our, our paths straight. To acknowledge God is to know him personally, and in all our ways and in everything that we do, we're to seek him and submit to him. But this making straight our paths doesn't promise that everything is going to be easy or that God will direct our paths in such a way that nothing will happen bad. We know that. But it's to say that he'll keep us from, from evil. He'll keep us from turning from him. He will guard us because we are his. And it will help us go down the straight and narrow path, a morally narrow path that leads to Christ and leads to eternal life. 
that he is holding us there. Verses 7 and 8 say, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, we see this appeal to reject wisdom from one's own point of view and to receive wisdom from God. In verse 8, the benefit of that says, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So we have this fear of the Lord again, like in verse um, chapter 1, verse 7 said, Fear the Lord. And so we see this again, appealing to fear the Lord, but this time it adds in turn away from evil and then the reward that you will find healing to your flesh and refreshment for your bones. Again, it doesn't assure us of perfect things, but it does assure the son of good things that will come for obedience, healing, refreshment, life to the physical body, improvement of this whole person again, making this wholesome connection. An application here is trust who he is, not our own ideas and plans for life. Seems simple enough, but... A lot of times, it's harder than it seems. Um, sometimes, it's easier to trust God in the big things than in the little things. Uh, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God, says, Sometimes we come to the place where we do not demand of God that he explain himself, but we try to determine or comprehend for ourselves what God is doing. We are unwilling to live without rational reasons for what is happening to us or those we love. We are almost insatiable in our quest for the why of the adversity that has come upon us. But this is a futile as well as an untrusting task. God's ways, being the ways of infinite wisdom, simply cannot be comprehended by our finite minds. And he goes on to quote Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And continuing. So sometimes we may question things but we need to trust in him and trust that his way is perfect and that his way is best and as I said sometimes I have a harder time trusting him in the day-to-day little things than in the big things and Jerry Bridges also says later in his book in trusting God still another pitfall to trusting God which we are prone to fall into is to turn to God and trust in the greater crisis experiences of life while seeking to work through the minor difficulties ourselves A disposition to trust in ourselves is part of our sinful nature. A mark of Christian maturity is to continually trust the Lord in the minutia of daily life. If we learn to trust God in the minor adversities, we will be better prepared to trust him in the major ones. Are you flourishing or diminishing in this area? Are you trusting God for who he is? Are you looking to your own plans and ideas and your own strength on a day-to-day basis, even in the little things? The second part of the posture to the Lord here is that there are some external actions, not just internal actions. We've seen the things that happen within our heart and within our person. But verses 9 and 10 focus on honoring the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now, I lived in Peru in 2006 to 2008 as a journeyman, and I actually had the opportunity to see um, what it was like to bring your first fruits and lay them on the altar of the church. Um, We were in a village. The people didn't have um, much monetary um, exchange. They grew their own crops. And so this family comes in and brings their bananas and lays them at the front of the church, and it's their first fruits. And so I've actually seen this, and it's, it's an amazing thing. But is that what this really means for us? Do we bring our cucumbers and our tomatoes and put them on the altar in front of Pastor Brian on a Sunday morning? No, we don't. But... There is an element of we give our best to God. We give our whole self to God. We give the things first that um, we might want to put somewhere else. Um, 
we talked about it in our group this morning, but putting, putting your tithe out first before you budget everything else, Katie's mentioned that before as well, um, even when money is tight, um, putting those things first, putting, putting the Lord first, not only with tithing, but also with service and with how you give of your time and your talents to the Lord. Verse 10 says, then your barns will be filled, filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, we have this imagery of gaining from the land because the first fruits were the produce of the land. Then you gain from the land. The barns will be filled. The vats will be bursting. These rewards are pr- plentiful and they're outward. They're outwardly noticed by others. So are you flourishing and diminish- or diminishing here with giving of your time and your service and your money and your tithing? Um, my parents growing up, they, um, they were just faithful members of their church. And my parents imparted wisdom to me through, through serving. Uh, I remember, I don't know how often we did it, but it was pretty often because I remember it well. We would, before we would go to church on a Sunday morning, we would go to a nursing home across town. The church was half a mile from our house, but the nursing home was way across actually in another town. And we would go there and we would sing hymns and we would do a devotional with the people at the nursing home along with another family from our church. And I remember that so well that we went and ministered to the people at the nursing home. My dad also um, was the sound guy at our church, and he would take cassette tapes to all the shut-ins. He knew every older person in our church, um, knew them well. They'd give him little breads and cookies and different things to come home with. And I would go with him sometimes and visit with these ladies and men. And um, my dad also mowed the lawns for some of these people. And I knew all the older people in our church. Um, I knew everyone in our church growing up because of my parents and how they served. My mom, she taught two- and three-year-olds for 40-some years faithfully. And so when it came up that there was a position here for um, nursery coordinator, I thought, well, I don't really feel like that this is what I'm best gifted at, but my mom faithfully served with two- and three-year-olds for this long. I, I certainly can, can do my part to, to serve the children here because it's that important, important to pour into the lives of children for the sake of the gospel. And I learned these things from my parents through their faithful service. And from, they didn't mean for it to be, but it was their outward, their outward barns being filled, their outward vats bursting for me to see that. And then tithing on a regular basis. Giving to things like the Lottie Moon Christmas offering um, that the Southern Baptists have, or even other missions endeavors, or things like that in addition to tithing are so important. And so, so rich in blessing to hear um, when I was a journeyman, I, re- I received greatly from getting the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and so I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of it. And so I want to give in that way, too, because I know that it blesses the missionaries around the world to share the gospel. And then, yes, we already mentioned tithing and putting that first, making that our first priority to serve our church and to, to give to the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Our second, my son, Ask the question, are you persevering through discipline, which leads to wisdom? Are you persevering through discipline, which leads to wisdom? So in this section, the, the first two verses, verses 11 and 12, are the posture to the Lord's discipline here. The posture to the Lord's discipline. And so, what is discipline? So first, let's read it. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. So discipline here can be 
I struggled with this a little bit because it's, it's kind of hard to flesh out. But when you look at it, discipline can be the, the things that happen, the things that we sin in, and the Lord correcting that and teaching us. And there may be a consequence to that, but he's teaching us and growing us in that way. But discipline can also be the trials of life that we face and the struggles that come that the Lord is using to test our heart that is not something that we caused, but that the Lord allows to, to show our faithfulness and to grow us in trusting him. Um, Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 speaks the best to this. Now, here it actually quotes these verses from um, 11 and 12 in this section of, of verses in Hebrews. But in, in Proverbs, we know it's speaking the father to the son, but in Hebrews, it's speaking to us being children of God. So let's look at it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That was Sarah's verse from last week, by the way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Isn't that such a good picture of how God disciplines us as his children? It's not only for instruction, training, and correction, but perseverance in the painful test of life. An application of this is accept discipline with humility and a teachable spirit. Are you flourishing or diminishing in that? Are you accepting humility with a teachable spirit? Accepting discipline with humility and a teachable spirit. The best example that I can think of this is um, Elizabeth Elliot. She's best known as the wife of Jim Elliot, where he and his colleagues, as you know, were killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. But before they were married, they each spent um, time apart in Ecuador, and they were talking about maybe getting married. But they were each in different areas of Ecuador, and she wrote a book called These Strange Ashes, and it's one of my favorite books. And I'm going to ruin it for you. It's a great book to read, but I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to ruin the gist of it. So, But um, she went through several different things where there was a woman who they were trying to reach her, her family, and the people, and the woman um, died in childbirth, and they were the ones that were helping her in the childbirth. There was a translator that she had, and, um, and he was the only one that was helping her with the scriptures there, and he was murdered. Then she had a suitcase with all of her translation materials. It went missing on a, on a car ride from one point to another, and they never found it. And then Jim, separately in his own area in Ecuador, he had been building some buildings, creating these stations for, for mission work there, and a flood came through and washed it all away. And at the end of the book, Elizabeth Elliot says, 
I began to learn the deep meaning of the cross in the life of a believer. God was quietly and steadily teaching me what I now somewhat ruefully call the four kindergarten lessons. The deaths of Maruha and Macario, the loss of the year's language work, and the destruction of all Jim's buildings. They were to prepare me for yet more formidable courses. As we learn to know God, we learn that his ways are past finding out. I can't help but think that the reason why she was able to persevere through the next things that came, the more formidable courses, is that she had been through these things and had seen the Lord's faithfulness. And so when her husband was killed um, and his colleagues were killed by these Indians, she said, we're going back. And she led the pack when they went back to go share the gospel and those people became believers. Are you persevering in small things and big things for the sake of the gospel? Verses 13 through 20 are going to shift a little and look at the rewards, the rewards of wisdom. So 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12 kind of start a bookend, so to say, and then verses 19 and 20 are a sub-bookend. So these are the ultimate bookends, but 13 through 18 bookends itself. So why all these bookends? <laughs> 13 through 18 begins with the, and ends with the word blessed. This is called an inclusio. And so I talked to my uh, PhD husband. He actually helped me a lot with, with studying the word here, but with all of this. But with inclusio, he said, well, here's a good picture for you what an inclusio is. Think about the Amazon symbol. Can you picture it? There's a little arrow with kind of a smile. And it doesn't go to the end of the word. It points to the Z, and it starts over at the A. So essentially, Amazon, through their logo, is telling us they have everything from A to Z. That's kind of what an inclusio is. It's this all-encompassing, here, this is important. I want you to look at this. And so the Lord's discipline at the beginning, the Lord's founding of wisdom at the end, they bookend this inclusio of blessed to show this is really important. This wisdom is the pinnacle of what we're looking for here. It's a key focus of why the son is heeding his father's teaching and trusting the Lord. He wants to gain this wisdom. He wants to be blessed in life. He wants to be blessed by knowing the Lord. We see also here that wisdom all throughout these verses is personified as her. That goes back to the son wanting to follow this woman. This woman is, is appealing to him, this woman wisdom and how the male perceives and receives this wisdom. So the climax of this passage is the, the surpassing value of wisdom is above monetary value. Verses 13 through 15 say, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Exactly what we sang in the chorus beforehand. These are, these are physical, temporal symbols of wealth and riches. The gold, the silver, the, the jewels. But nothing, nothing compares to the wisdom that we have in God. All of this imagery, it's lavish, it's extravagant. And godly wisdom is valued far beyond any of it. Verses 16 through 18 say, Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. 
So we see a shift here from riches and possessions to long life, honor, harmony, peace, blessing, these things that, that the father has told his son all along that they're, they continue to be important, they continue to be rewards here. We see these symbols of flourishing both temporally and we see eternal symbols of flourishing here. The tree of life, verse 18, she's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, has a special significance here. The tree of life has eschatological or end-time implications as well as beginning implications. We look at Genesis, when the man and the woman were separated from God, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, they were given wisdom that they shouldn't have had, and they were separated from God and ultimately were, were doomed to receive death. But we know that Christ came to redeem that. And when Solomon speaks of this in Proverbs, he's saying, look, the tree of life will return. Revelation 22, 1 through 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this tree of life, it's there in Revelation also. And what was broken in Genesis becomes restored in Revelation because of Christ. And here the father is saying to his son, look, wisdom is a tree of life. Hold on to it. Receive it. Gain from it. It's better than anything else, and it will lead you to eternal life. Dwayne Garrett, he says that even people at this time outside of, of an Israelite context would have understood that this tree of life meant an escape from the curse of death because there were other writings at the time that mentioned the tree of life. It was that important. And these people would have looked to that and seen this is a promise. This is a promise from God that there will be something better than this. Verses 19 through 20, as I said, they, they finished the bookend here. They are, they're the ending. And it shows the Lord's character here. They point out that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. He established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. This is showing us that the Lord is the author of wisdom. It's always been there with him. Garrett says, whoever abandons wisdom runs against the very structure by which the world was made. Bruce Waltke goes on to say that human wisdom that entails sobriety, sound judgment, discretion, careful planning, hard work, patience, and all the other virtues taught in Proverbs finds its basis within that broad scope of the Lord's wisdom. If the Lord, with wisdom as his tool, accomplished the wonders of the various phases of creation, setting the earth on its foundations by splitting the primeval waters and setting the heavens in their appointed place and watering the earth with dew from its clouds, think what his revealed wisdom will do in the lives of those who find it. Isn't that amazing? He reveals his wisdom to us, and he's the founder of it. And again, it goes back to fearing the Lord. We need to know the Lord and fear him in this. So an application here is seek wisdom, receive wisdom. Seems simple enough, right? But James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He promises that he will give us his wisdom. A good example here is there's a man named Forrest Finn. who He lives in New Mexico, but he decided that he was tired of 
people watching TV and being on their phones too much, and he had a lot of wealth. He has these jewels and different things he's collected over the years. So he decided, he's in his late 80s, he decided he was going to take all his wealth and put, some of his wealth and put it in this, this chest and bury it out west. And he created this whole riddle with it, and it was in order for families to get out west and to see the outdoors and to get away from their phones and to spend time together as a family. He thought it would be a great thing. And it is, but it's kind of turned into this obsession for some people. Over 300,000 people have gone to look for this treasure. Four people have died in the process trying to find it. And also, some people have even tried to sue this man, Forrest Finn, to say it's not possible to find it. So to this day, to my knowledge, it has not been found. But this isn't how seeking God's wisdom is. James said it right there in verse 1-5. If anyone you, of one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God gives us his wisdom. It's like a hidden treasure. It's valued above all else. It's better than gold and silver and rubies and anything that we could desire, and we need to seek it, and we, we can obtain it. He gives it to us, and he gives us different wisdom in different seasons of life if we keep seeking it. So the third, my son, what are the benefits of gaining this godly wisdom? Well, first, it's life for the soul. Verses 21 and 22 say, My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Again, this is practical application here. We've seen what wisdom can do. Now this is practically applying it to to the son and what it can do for his life. It moves from accepting the father's words here to guarding them and not letting them go, that wisdom and discretion are, are important to, to hold on to. And it brings life to the soul. It will preserve the life and that personal security, freedom from anxiety, the things that, that um, most bind us in this world. It will be a life-giving source. We have a return here, too, to that Deuteronomy 6 imagery of binding and being an adornment. Adornment for the neck also refers back to Verse 14 talked about the lavish gold and silver, and that makes me think of a necklace. And it reminds me of that, that it's, it's better than that. We're going to adorn our necks with this wisdom and hold on to it. And again, it ties into keeping it close to our heart, keeping it close to our person to transform us. And then there's a, um, a confidence in verses 23 and 24, a confidence that's gained. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So when you lie down, it's one of the times when you're most vulnerable. And you're sleeping, you're not alert to your surroundings. Pastor Brian even talked about this a few weeks ago, about um, Ishbosheth was killed when he was sleeping. He was vulnerable to the people coming to take his life. But this doesn't say that, that that's what's ha- going to happen. It says if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. It means that you'll have pleasant rest, that there's nothing to be afraid of, that there's a confidence in the Lord in this, in this situation. Verses 25 and 26 finish up here in this passage with um, fearing the Lord and not man in difficult times. Verse 25 says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Verse 26. So notice there, it didn't say if. It says when, when it comes, when the ruin of the wicked comes, when the sudden terror comes. Like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that we're kept from trials and from different things, that there will be perseverance through trials and persecution if we have this wisdom. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus said that in this world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. So we have this fear of the Lord and not man when things do happen. That we can trust in him, we have our confidence in him. An example most recently of this is a pastor in Nigeria. Um, Brian, pastor Brian talked about this a few weeks ago as well. But there was a pastor in Nigeria in January who was captured by Boko Haram. And he was asked to renounce his faith in Christ. And when they did a, a video, Pastor Undimi um, said, All conditions that one finds himself is in the hand of God. And he went on to say, By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife and my children and all my colleagues. If the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. And on January 20th, he actually was beheaded by Boko Haram. But he had his confidence in the right place. His confidence was in trusting the Lord. He knew sudden terror. He knew the ruin of the wicked. And he feared the Lord more and would not renounce his faith and trusted in the Almighty One. So that's our benefit here. We gain confidence through trusting him. When we walk by wisdom, we're not living in fear of doing wrong, and we're not self-serving. The second thing here is to hold on to wisdom and impart it to others. The wisdom of service that was passed down to me from my parents, I want to pass it on to my children. The wisdom through trials that I've learned over the course of several years, I want to to learn and glean from them and, and not forget and to pass that on to my children. We all have the wisdom and knowledge of the gospel to pass on to others around us. Are you flourishing or diminishing in this? Are you trusting, putting your confidence in the Lord? Are you relying on your own strength? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's life-giving. And we thank you for your wisdom that when we ask for it, we will receive it. And that that's a promise that we can hold on to. We thank you for just... um, showing us who you are through through these words and through this passage. And we just um, pray that we will continue to seek your wisdom and not our own strength as we go throughout this week. It's your name I pray. Amen.